Zoom with our coworkers Jamise and Deidre. They bring their perspectives as black educators to the conversation about what we all need to be thinking about and doing differently in our classrooms to ensure our students' equity. As the dialogue about race and racism in our country once again comes to the forefront, we felt it was important to have an honest discussion about what teachers need to be aware of when dealing with the diversity within our own classes. Today we talk about the importance of having those difficult but frank conversations about bias out in the open instead of behind closed doors, about holding each other accountable when things are done or said. We also discuss the ideas of standards to hold students to when dealing with language and culture and how to take advantage of those teachable moments as conduits towards change. In light of the movement for massive change within our country that is now being pushed forward, we delved into the topic of civic responsibility and how to get the right people into office so that major change can be more readily accomplished. Deidre and Jamise are a joy to talk with, and this frank, no-nonsense conversation, well, there is some nonsense in there, but Sharon and I learned so much, and we hope that you will too, and find today's dialogue just as enlightening, and come away with maybe some ideas of how to bring more equity to your own classrooms and campuses. Please share your ideas and thoughts on this topic with us by leaving your comments on our website at www.transparencyandteaching.com. Now, on with the discussion. because of the situation that has been forced into the light again with the whole situation with Floyd and his untimely way of passing. And as a result of that, we felt it was really important to get together and have a conversation, a real conversation about what needs to happen in our schools to really make a difference and bring equity to all people. So joining me today on this very special podcast is, of course, Sharon. Sharon, hi. I'm here. Jen can't be with us today. She's got some uh, construction going on. But we do have two wonderful special guests with us to have this conversation with. And um, we have Deidre and Jamise. Hi. Hi. So uh, Jamise, will you tell us a little bit about what, where you teach, not necessarily where, but what you teach and how long you've been teaching and any other information you want us to know about you? Yes, I have been teaching a total of about 25 years, uh, 14 years in our current district, and I teach a plethora of things. I am a SPED teacher, uh, or credentialed SPED teacher, and because of where I teach, I can also teach certain subjects, so I teach a couple sections of U.S. history, and I'm the AVID coordinator at my site. Okay, and Deidre, tell us a little bit about you. Hi, I'm Deidre. I've been teaching approximately 23 years. I teach English language art at the junior high level. Um, I've also taught adult ed. I've taught English one and two at the high school level. Um, this is a second career for me. I worked 
about 12 years in corporate America, but always had a passion for education and love kids and love what I do. Okay, great. And I brought them on particularly because they have a much more significant perspective on the situations that we're going on um, now. Both Deidre and Jamise happen to be black uh, teachers at our schools. And so I thought we really needed their perspective in order to make a valid discussion. So let's kind of just get into this whole thing about equity and, and bias. And let me ask you, in your own opinions and, and help us see it better, what does racism look like in a classroom? Because I don't think that there are any teachers that I can think of at our school that are what I would call overtly racist or would say that they, they do or say things that are biased. Um, at least not intentionally. So what are some things that are happening that you can kind of point out that we could become more aware of? I think one thing that I've seen change over the course of even the 14 years that I've been in this district is the use of the N-word in the classroom. It is thrown around so prevalently. And I have seen things shift from it being something that was never said in the classroom to a time where you might see just black students exchanging it to now where it's white students, brown students are not just saying it to other black students, but calling each other that. And there's just really, it seems to be like this desensitized like movement where as an educator, I always, I, each and every time I try to confront it and I'm now, it's starting to get to the point where I'm looked at as doing something that is none of my business or saying something that's none of my business if I try to interject. And it's quite disturbing. Wow. That is, I, I yeah, that is very disturbing. So I, how do you approach that then? Yeah that because I always tell them I'm like I don't care that that's what you hear in your music and I don't care that that's what you call your friends I said that is an offensive term to be used in a classroom and it has an extremely negative connotation I tried to go action is that is that kind of like what you do or how do you address that oh you're so sweet the first thing I say is excuse me <laughs> what the hell <laughs> You know, I, I make a big deal. I don't, I'm not so dramatic with it, but I do place emphasis because I see how they are so desensitized to it and by the word and they don't, they don't um, align it with any cultural relevancy. So I just use it as a teachable moment, but it's so frequent that I just corrected each and every time. And as a result, I've also had to talk to coworkers about you know, not allowing them, like we need to make this a campus-wide thing and how this is something that's totally offensive to me personally, like me, you know, even, and, and I think that, not to say that other people don't care, but I just think that it's something that teachers who are not black or brown just kind of don't want to get their hands dirty with. They don't want to confront that student to be met with something else because, you know, one thing that kids will do is they just, they'll use any defense they have. So the first thing they want to do is say, oh, you're a racist, even though it's like, dude, I'm telling you not to say that. So how am I the racist? You know, so they just don't even want that confrontation. 
And so they just tip, it just seems like sometimes it's just not really addressed. Like we have, we've had conversations about it at staff meetings or even if I'm in the staff lounge, but I don't really know how offensive people really understand that it is for, you know, me to hear that walking on campus or having to stand up in front of my class and continue to teach. And that's just like coming at me or just in the environment. So what do you do though? I've had kids tell me, well, that's just how we talk. And I say, well, this is a professional learning environment and you're not going to talk like that in my room or there will be repercussions. I think that's a, a super valid point. I wish we should, maybe that's something that needs to be done in professional development at the beginning of the school year, something like that. So that all teachers are on board with how to handle it properly. Well, I think, I, you know, I just want to like throw this in here. Like this is just a really difficult conversation for anybody to have, you know, I mean, it's horrible that these horrible events have led up to it being in such a forefront. And I feel horribly guilty that I'm, you know, a 50 plus old white woman who teaches in a title one school with lots of kids of color. And I'm just like starting to delve into, well, what is it that I could possibly be doing? I don't think I do anything wrong. Like I've been listening to lots of black educators over the last week and listening to you know what they call like microaggressions and i'm like well fuck i i've done that and like how can i get someone to bring those to my attention when i don't realize i'm doing them so that i'm so i can be better i don't know if that if if that makes sense i mean i think this whole conversation is really hard and i know that we talked about that drive when we discussed this, it's like, we don't want to come off in a certain way, but yet if we don't start talking about it openly, then how the hell is anything going to change? And something has to change because this is, this is completely, completely unacceptable. Well, I think initially, I think first as adults, we need to start calling each other out on things that have been spoken yeah. or things that are spoken behind closed doors. Yeah. And I think if we kind of confront those truths, and hold each other accountable in that regard, then it'll be easier to kind of hold the kids accountable. But as long as we're, it's sort of like, do as I say, not as I do. If we're gonna go forward with that kind of mentality, I don't think there's gonna be any real change because we're not really gonna confront each other and hold each other accountable. And you said a key word the other day, Sharon, you said publicly. It's very different if I pull somebody aside and have a private conversation with them and say, you know what, if I said anything offensive, but to say it in public amongst white colleagues you know if you said something or done something offensive to a, a black individual but to say that amongst white colleagues that makes the world of difference and it's not about shaming anybody but it's about holding people accountable to truth right so that that situation i was talking with deidre about um the other day was uh, we had a black VP on campus and we had another black educator um, at our table. I think it was at lunchtime and, and people were kind of ragging on our VP about her, the job that she does and everything. And our other black educator said, you know, sometimes I feel bad for her because, you know, like we're like the only black people on campus and everybody was like, oh no, we're not like that. You know, we're not, we, you know, it's not about race and, and, and I was like, oh my God, like 
we're not even listening to her. If that's the way she feels, then maybe we should be taking that into account and listening because we're not in that position. And I was telling Deidre, I don't, I, I felt really bad. And I really honestly don't remember if I ever went up to her because later I was like, I need to talk to her and I need to like apologize and say, you know, I feel bad that that, that that she feels that way. But as I'm, we were talking about it, you know, Deidre and I were like, what I really need to do is say that when it's happening, because that's those microaggressions. And that's those issues that from what I've heard over the last week, listening to other people is it, like, that's like the beginning of a problem. There's just little tiny things that we just kind of let go. And we don't think that it's because of race or like, why do you always have to make it about race? Why is it always about race? Well, for us being white, we don't think of everything being about race because maybe it's not. But now that I think about it, maybe it really is. And maybe, I mean, I understand a lot of the opportunities that I've had, right, are because I'm a white woman, like, like, I'm going to get pulled over by the cops, because I don't have my registration, and my license, and I'm around the corner from my house, you know, I can laugh it off and go, ha, I forgot it's over here, and they let me go, you know, but if I'm a, if I was like a 20-year-old black male, I don't think that would happen. You know, a truth that I encountered and as working in this district and then being a parent is, you know, my son has grown up with the same kids. He's now about to go to middle school. And when he was little, I would look and say, gosh, you know, all of these boys of all different races are just playing together and all they know is fun and that they are bonding. And before he went to kindergarten, I called the principal and I had a talk with her over the summer because I had some real concerns. I was concerned about my son, who I knew was going to be one of the only and has been throughout, you know, his academic career. Fortunately, he's bright and has not, you know, ever had any problems in that regard. But when he was in first grade, he came home and said, mommy, um, I learned a word today. And I said, what? And he said, nigger. And I about, I about died. Someone said, someone came, a friend of his came up to him on the playground and said, hey, I know a word and whispered it to him. That was the first time he'd ever heard that. And it was just like, wow. I, at that point, I just felt like so much of my power was taken from me from something that I thought I could protect forever and ever. And I realized the reality of things. And I realized that I wasn't overreacting, calling that principle because the very things that I, you know, the, my fears, this is what I was being confronted with. And this is my child, not even my student in a place where I'm going in every day, trying to help other students in this district. And of course they don't have anything to do with that. But as a mother, I just was, I was like, oh my goodness, like this is the world that we really live in. And now I'm impacted by it so much more than I ever have been because it's just hitting closer and closer and closer to home to where it, okay, okay, right here, you're just trying to take up a room in my home. Um, I had to think about, okay, where did this come from with this boy? And I, you know, kept asking my son questions. Of course, he was so little. And he's like, he has older brothers. And I'm like, okay, so this kid is hearing this being picked up. This is where it all starts. These seeds are planted here. That's just the seed that was planted in him. Then you're going to have a seed planted in somebody else to be like, oh, you're different. You're, you're better than this kid or, you know, things like that. So it's just kind of like it starts at home 
and we don't know what's going on in everyone's homes and you know how do we approach changing the mindset of people when it comes to their children being in a school setting and but i think that they're so impressionable that as an educator i mean i don't teach small children like that but i feel that you can start when they're young like that having those conversations and really showing them how they can be better people and kinder to one another given what's going on in our society or just existing in society and i don't think it should be isolated to a black history month mm -hmm. uh -uh. you know uh-uh. So, yeah, we can't just isolate to one twelfth. It's like one twelfth out of the twelve months, we're gonna just really zone in on celebrating and commemorating black accomplishments. No, this is a minute by minute daily struggle that needs to be fought. And I think you're absolutely right, Jamise, in terms of embedding and planning or uprooting those negative seeds that have been planted and then replanting seeds that are showing, you know, every person as a human being and again like you said exhibiting and showing that kindness but i also want to go back to what you just said about calling the principal that to me was a teachable moment and that's i think how we're going to overcome it sharon the um, incident that you mentioned in terms of addressing oh was i offensive to that individual so just isolating it down to teachable moments i think that's going to be winning half the fight so Janice, you're talking about a teachable moment in the classroom. How do we as educators then deal with these things that are being taught to the kids at home? They're coming to school with that. I, and I'm even thinking it's great if you can nip it in the bud in elementary school when they're really young, but what happens when they're getting into junior high, middle school, and this has been years and years of, of hearing oh. and thinking it's okay and listening to the music and thinking that it's okay. How, as teachers, when we come across that, how do we deal with that? What do you, I, well, I think we have to look at and what it like really standing behind our philosophies as educators. Learning is a lifelong process. So when they get to those stages, we start where we are. We start and work with them from where we are with them and where they are. For example, uh, the students enjoy listening to music. So, okay, we're gonna to listen to music, but I'm putting the edited version on Pandora. So they can hear all of their songs, you're just not gonna have all of the raunchiness that you're used to hearing. And it really helps to like, let them hear, you know, the melody, the beats, but not all the stuff that their gates are receiving that are derogatory that they wanna go out immediately and like spew out when they're in the quad. Um, that's one thing. Another thing is you address things as you're presented with them. When incidents arise, that's all I can control. And I'm gonna just use that opportunity to address it and reshape and reteach the behavior. Uh, I worked with one of our therapists who, I can't remember the name of this program, but it was something you use with elementary students where it had a theme each week and you would put it up like, we're going to say one kind thing to someone. And it had like three steps that you should take to expedite that process effectively. And when I tell you, I put that in my classroom and I was like, oh, we're going to do this. And I made a big deal out of it and I practiced it with the students and they did it. You know, not everyone did it. So I'm not saying like, oh yeah, this is a foolproof situation, but enough to where I could see the climate changing. So, and I used it for or when there were situations like that, that would come up, like calling someone the N-word just because you're addressing them like, hey, you know, like, no, you don't need to do that. 
and just helping them kind of like break those habits. And of course, I don't control what they do when they're outside of my classroom, but I would just also really make them feel like this is a professional learning environment and just like repeating those things and trying to pull out of them what I really wanted to see and what I knew that they had inside of them and just trying to model it as well. And, you know, one question that I would ask students is like, do you talk like this in front of your parents? Mm -hmm. And a lot of them would say yes. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I call their bluff and say, okay, well, let me, I'm going to just call your mom. And of mm -hmm. course they flip out like, oh, but there were some that were like, okay. And, you know, and I would take that time when, if I had a parent conference or I needed to talk to that parent, I would mention it. And I would just say, you know, it's just like taking, even though it seems minute, it was taking it a step further and saying, hey, you know, I was talking to little John John today and, uh, he said that he uses profanity when you guys are conversing. I just wanted to let you know that, you know, heard him in the classroom and I would just kind of turn it into a dialogue between the parent and I. And whether or not they were going to do anything, we've had the conversation. You know how I feel. You know how it's impacting your child in a negative way. And hopefully you're gonna take some of that and maybe even from that, just address it the next time he does it at home. So let me, let me throw this out there so if i were to do that though let's say it was a black child saying that word in the classroom and then the parent came in and i wanted to talk to them about it is there an, a chance that i might be being perceived as being racist because i was bringing that up that would be i think a concern that people who are not black might have a feeling about i think that if you're addressing the word i don't maybe that might be a person's defense mechanism who kind of doesn't really have anything else to pull from. But I'm just, if it were me, I would not, I would appreciate the teacher having the dialogue with me and try to respect that. But I see what you're saying. Like you would probably be confronted with a parent who might have that reaction. Um, I think that those kind of hard conversations are just going to have to be had, you know? There's no way around it. It's, it's an uncomfortable situation to be in, but I think that we have to just establish standards. And as long as you're coming with authenticity, if someone is testing you like that, you gotta just push through that and know how you're gonna toe the line as far as what standards you're gonna establish for that learning environment. I was gonna just say that's it's semi-verbal abuse. And so if you're promoting, like Jimmy said, a safe learning environment, then that would be considered unsafe in terms of how we're going to communicate with each other, again, exhibiting a, a certain decorum of professionalism. And so that, to me, is offensive. You're offending us all. You're not just offending one person that you're spewing the N-word to or whatever offensive um, way you're confronting them. This is like offensive to the entire learning environment. And it's not conducive to promoting anything healthy for us all. Also wondering, do you think that some of the ways kids throw language around today has to do with the fact that they're not really cognizant of history and the meaning of behind those words and that this is kind of like an old person's thing. This is not the new generation thing. I, or am I off base on thinking that? And I believe in gates. I believe in eyes, ears, or mouth. Kids have so much access constantly. They can click a button and see, hear anything. 
And so if they're, if you're constantly being fed these lyrics or you're able to have content that you're viewing, I think that that's like one fold of it. And then the other fold is, yes, they're, you know, I don't know if grandparents are sitting around telling about those old stories of what their struggles were or even their ancestors. I don't know if that's happening anymore. I'm, I'm also thinking that just kind of occurred to me that I think when kids are listening to music, I don't want to just make this about music, but that they um, don't realize that rap was born out of rage and as a way of, of complaining and bringing to light the, the problems that people were having. And that's where this anger comes from. And I think kids today are just throwing around the words and not really looking at it. I don't know, maybe we need to study rap as poetry in school and look at it you know, in that, under that kind of a microscope rather than just, hey, that's a great beat and these are fun words to say. Now, see, the way that my, or my definition of rap would be just that, that it is poetry. And that if you're choosing to talk about something derogatory about a woman or what you do with her and so forth, then you're just taking those words and putting anger down on the paper. But the words themselves are rap as a, an art is poetry. And so I don't think that... I think that the kids oftentimes will just kind of decide what version of it that they want. And based on that, then that's just kind of where your, your temperament will probably lie. But I don't think that it all has to be that. Like there are some really positive rappers out there that, you know, kids like that send good messages that, you know, it just doesn't have to, to be that. So, what should our conversations be about in classrooms then? Um, how, how, how do you know what implicit bias is? Can I, can I just add something to uh, what we were talking about, like when those things happen in our classroom? I think uh, it's important, and I've kind of gotten away from this, but I used to do this all the time and it worked pretty well. And then I heard one of the educators talk about it this week that I was listening to and they were talking about that this exact same situation where language is coming up and it's like you know what hey you know can I talk to you for a second out in the hall you know to the student uh-huh. instead of saying something in front of everybody kind of and I know this depends on the situation but it, he said it's to the point where all his kids are like hey you're not in trouble because he always is like you know you're not in trouble I just want to talk to you for a second and I used to do that all the time like when a kid was angry or there was an outburst or they were they you know pulled someone's chair out or whatever it was and I'd just be like hey you know let me talk to you for a second you know so you know you're not in trouble I just want to talk to you for a second and just talking with them to figure out where that's coming from Uh and like why where is it coming from and 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 usually I would always start it with like so I just want to ask you like did I do something to upset you and then they'd be like what no or yes you know, when they said yes, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and then, you know, it's like, well, you said such and such to me or something. Like, oh, wow. I really didn't mean to make you feel that way. Or, you know, you, no, why would you say that? Well, because this isn't like a normal way of acting. And so I just kind of want to figure out where it is, that, where you're upset about and what's going on so that we can, you know, work through it. Instead of just like, I mean, we haven't talked about it, but instead of just saying, you know, get out, you can't talk that way, get out. You, you can't, you can't use that language in this room, go to the office. Like, I, like, I don't think that we do that, but I'm, I know some teachers do do that. I think implicit bias comes a lot from 
underlying stereotype. And so without knowing it, sometimes we can have a predisposition toward Black kids, and I would say uh -huh. boys especially, uh -huh. that are stereotypical in nature. And a, an example that I'll use is I was reading through some of the literature that Anne sent on one of the links, and I hadn't even noticed it, but they pointed out that even when portraying crimes in the media, I don't know if you guys are familiar or you are familiar with it, but I don't know if you remember the incident where the, the white young man went into a movie theater and killed those individuals, the Batman premiere. Oh, yeah. And so he was portrayed on the front cover of the newspaper in a suit and tie. And it says, brilliant scientist murders, you know, people at the movie theater. And then same sort of murderous crime, Black men were portrayed with their mugshot. Nothing mm -hmm. about their education, nothing about, they could have been brilliant scientists too. Who are we to know? Same thing with a couple of um, athletes at a university. Three white young men went and burglarized someplace, but they had on suit and ties. And it was like university of blah, 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 athletes burglarized. And then same crime committed by African-American young men who could have been athletes. We don't know but they were portrayed with their mugshot. So I think a lot of it has to do with what's perpetuated in the media. Um, in addition to there just being that underlying tone of stereotype. So, and it's so, it's so insidious, right? Because absolutely really, you know, you don't really notice it. I read that article too, Dee, and they had some other really interesting pictures of things that, and the way they had to write headlines and such to make that, you know, how it would appear. Mm -hmm. And, and you just don't really notice it because it's not like you don't get a compare and contrast. You just right. get a thing. And then later on something else comes and you don't remember how that was portrayed, but it's, you know, in your subconscious now. And after right. years and years and years of seeing this, it's really hard to uh, call it to your own attention. I think, I think it would be much more to my attention now that I've been really paying more attention to what's out there and when reading about it more. But I think for most people, yeah, for most people, though, I think that it's, like, it's something you don't even think about, right? It's yeah, but Anne, you said a key word, with intentionality. So, uh -huh. Sharon, just the fact that you said, you know what, now I'm going to start really rethinking and thinking about what's the intentionality of this moment. Instead of calling this kid out, you know, in front of peers and so forth, let's go have that private moment, uh -huh. pulling them aside. I think those situations of intentionality, that's going to make a world of difference in terms of breaking down the barrier of it being, you know, this white teacher's breathing down my throat as a black student. Well, you know, I did my thesis proposal on uh, ADHD diagnosis in black boys. And I found out some really interesting statistics. I was a new teacher at the time and just kind of going through my credential program. And the percentage was like in the 80s of teachers that were white women. And of those white women, they typically were teaching classrooms full of black or brown boys, mainly black boys. And just the outstanding percentage of those boys that were getting referred for special education, teacher recommendation, and just saying that to say, not to get into the statistics of it all per se, but one of the things that, that's going to have to happen as educators when we're talking about the conversations about our own implicit bias is that it's not just about getting to know your students. I think as educate, as white educators, people are going to have to take an interest in understanding the culture of the populations that they could encounter. And it's not just about like, hey, I, do you like this song? Or, you know, just really understanding 
more of who you're encountering so that you don't make those assumptions when a student comes into your classroom because not every student that's black likes rap music okay you know some of these students are great writers and such and they shouldn't have to have you pull that out of them when i've seen when it comes to students that aren't necessarily black you're just automatically thinking that there's like an array of things that they're interested in or talents that they have or potential that they have so that's one of to me the primary things that we have to do so um to piggyback on that and this was a thought that i had this year with one of my students who's constantly like talking under his breath right constantly like you know and and i was thinking about it and i was wondering if that's part of his culture because i know if i go to a predominantly black church the way that the audience interacts with a preacher is different than if i go to a predominantly white church so like is that part of the culture does that belong in the classroom where if they're just kind of like kind of like repeating what you're saying or under their breath you know i, I just i just let it go i i've i and i I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I just kind of like let it go because I'm like, well, it's not my culture, but it might be his culture. But do I need, to, does that need to be blended into our classroom or do we need to make our own classroom culture? I don't well, know. And Sharon, I mean, I know in, in some African or in some black churches, there's a call and response. Is that what you're referring to? Well, like even like well, girlfriend, let me tell you something. Oh, like child, you're mumbling. Speak you up. Shut it down. <laughs> shut that down. That has nothing to do with culture. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Girl, no. All right. Shut that down, boo. We ain't going there. Okay. No, you thank you. You're not getting a choir robe for mumbling in the classroom. <laughs> I don't know. I just was like, I was like, I don't know. And I don't remember. I actually, he can't amen you, Sharon. I'm sorry. No. Okay. All right. I don't remember if he was a black student or if he was Middle Eastern, but I, I just go, I just remember thinking like, I don't know, like, like, is this cultural or is this just like, no, that's the problem, right? Is a lot of us don't know where the line is. Right. Right. Where is that? me being biased and where is that me being no that's not appropriate right mm -hmm. but a lot of us who are trying to be more uh, cognizant of ourselves are afraid of that we're going to cross a line that should not have been crossed and maybe not intentionally but right. that's it goes back to i think what you were saying earlier d about well somebody needs to call you on that right so you go oh okay gotcha next time i'll be more aware. but we don't have people in our classroom right on a regular basis who, who are, you hey, know, they should create a position. I'll do it. Yes. You should <laughs> okay, totally do it. Implicit bias, please. I, but I swear, I mean, I, but I'm, I'm, in, I'm the bad. IBB. Your badge will be like, flash my badge. Okay. Sorry. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I think it's a great idea. <laughs> But you know what, Sharon, I think if we dialogue more, you know, perhaps have these intentional conversations in a staff meeting, you know, in our department meetings, and the conversation has to be ongoing, because this is such a deeply rooted systemic problem that uh -huh. you know, it, with us four, you know, woohoo, we're doing the best we can. 
but this has to be something that's got to be uprooted from its core. There's got to be an overhaul, even in the curriculum. Right. We're telling history from a skewed point of view. Yes. History is so freaking biased that it's unbelievable. And so if we're going to, and those, and pretty much there they're, they're are lies weaved and embedded within. So we got to come forth with the truth if we're going to ever see any change. So, you know, I, I'm interested to see what's going to happen as a result of this when it comes to our curriculum. Yeah. And it can't just be about, oh, you know, teaching ethnic, ethnic studies class. I love that. I love that idea. I would love to teach something like that. But this just has to be something deeply embedded within the entire curriculum, not right. just history. Right. Yeah. In fact, I was um, I had a link up there to a, a website that has like culturally relevant novels that we should be teaching in our classroom. There's some really good ones. We should look at that, Dee, um, because that's where we need to go to. The all kids need to hear every story. You know, not just this, you know, where the red fern grows and call of the wild and those kinds of things, you know. I think we just throw the term diversity around very loosely and it's really not even about diversity. Um, it's kind of overused where it really has no meaning now. I would rather you say intentional. Let's do something intentional. Let's diversify and all that. No, that's some convoluted, politically correct BS. So um, one thing based on what you were saying is uh, the diversity thing. And I was listening to these guys talk this week and they're like, it's not about diversity because no. diversity does not mean inclusion. Mm. So if you're going to be diverse, that's not the same thing as being included. So if you think of our SPED program and its inclusion and how we are stumbling through that with great stumbles and I'm sorry it's 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 great stumbles but everybody's afraid to say that we're stumbling uh -huh. it's it's like we're in education and everybody's afraid to say we don't know what the fuck we're doing we're, <laughs> we're doing the best we can and we and and we're gonna make mistakes and I'm sorry I'm gonna make mistakes but work with me not against me uh -huh. You know, work with me to help it get better. Stop telling me I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> or stop trying to portray this, portray this false image that all is well. Yes. It's like, you know what? No, the, the, let's like crack through that false image because all is not well. And it's okay that you look behind the curtain to see that, like you said, hey, we screwed up. And so what can we, we, we tell the kids this all the time, fail forward, fail forward. But it's like, oh, no. But we, we don't, don't do look. it because we're afraid of a parent repercussions and the right. district repercussions and the lawsuit that's coming to you and, and you're going to get written up and you're going to get in trouble for this and, you know, and you can't admit a mistake. And, but the other thing, that going back to the literature piece that Anne was talking about, this is also something that I learned this week that I was completely unaware of, is the Dr. Seuss, I guess, with all of Dr. Seuss books, portrayals of others that aren't white is always derogatory. Any of the books is completely derogatory. And how this one mom, she was like, I don't want my kid, you know, participate, like you guys, here's all the information that shows you that this is not inclusion of diversity at all. You know, and, I, and you shouldn't be glorifying this man in the read across America that we do, you know, in March or whatever. And it was linked to a, a study that shows that those biases are put in place when the children are three 
and they can be ingrained and, and set by the time they're age seven. So if we're thinking about that, and I brought this up at our meeting earlier today about a field trip that this woman went on and the museum was all white art. And she's like, well, do you have any art that's not all, it's not white? Oh yeah, yeah, we do. It's, it's over here in this other room, but we don't take the students on that in our tour. And she's like, excuse me? Right. Like we, like we, why isn't it incorporated into the whole museum? And why do I have to ask to take my kids there? You know, it's something that I would not, never have thought of. And she's like, I'm glad that I'm listening to her and she's bringing these things to my attention. But those things are all helping establish that bias. Even if the kid is four or five and you go somewhere and it's not included and it's separate, it's still established. It's just reiterating those biases that I am just like astounded at how much we need to fix. I I look at the Dr. Seuss little movement as just pure intolerance. It's like, really? We've got to do better. We've got to broaden what's on our shelves. The same way that February 1st, if a child comes home with one more printable of Dr. Martin Luther King, (laughs) I don't know what I will do. You know, wonderful for the civil rights movement, but there are so many other stories that say so many other things. And where we are today, we can't just be in nostalgia. You know, we have to continue to move forward and continue to evolve. And our children can't relate to Dr. King the same way they can't relate to those prehistoric stories that you want us to recount in our textbooks about U.S. history. So, yeah, the curriculum, we have got to do better. We must. Where it really becomes the, the, what do you call it, rubber meets the road is when we have to do something with the curriculum. The curriculum in our schools has to change. Mm-hmm. from K through 12, all the way through there. It has to be more integration. Where mm-hmm. it's like, it shouldn't even be like, oh, we're going to read a black story today. And tomorrow we're going to read a Latino story today. It should just be, we're going to read a story. And mm-hmm. these, and if we can ever get to that point, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's going to be a long time, I think. I think it's going to be a very long time, I think, until our, our own children or their children's children come to a world where they don't have to necessarily deal with this anymore. I don't know. Do you think it's possible in the future that this can happen? Or are we really the cornerstone in this? The cornerstone in everything. I'm excited, um, Anne, because I think based on this whole George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, based on this incident occurring right here, right now in 2020, I think this is going to be the catalyst that forces change. So so. I don't think it's a matter of Will it change? I think this is it. This is like no justice, no peace. So I got my sign ready. I'm ready to take it to the streets (laughs) in terms of, you know, overhauling the curriculum. I'm really afraid, like a lot of things where uh, an incident happens and then there's all this rage and it'll go on for a couple of weeks and then it'll settle down. Because it's, I mean, how many times have we been in this before? How many times has there been the shootings or the, the disrespect or something where the black community has had their hands up in outrage and people have been protesting and nothing gets changed? And then now it's happened again. And I appreciate your optimism, but besides going out in the streets and saying things, nothing's going to happen unless we get the right people to the places where the laws are made. And 
I'm, that's my opinion. I, I think it's going to take a big jump in um, who we put into authority mm-hmm. in order to make the changes that need to be made all the way down. So it's almost like if it doesn't start, at, it can start at the bottom, some grassroots movement, but that's only going to take it so far. And it might change a community, but we need bigger than just a community. And so I'm afraid that the rage will settle and then people will go back to where they were before until something happens again. I totally agree with you, Anne, but I think there's been enough spark within individuals to educate themselves now, to get more politically aware at the local levels in order to make that change happen. Because I'm guilty of you know, not really investigating who I'm putting in the office as my mayor, as my district attorney. As, so I said, you know what, I take full responsibility. I need to get my you know, butt up and actually investigate those individuals and make sure I'm voting at the local level and then really getting that information out to others. Also, getting more of a voice of Black people on boards. Yes. The, the boards are so imbal- racially imbalanced that it's unbelievable. Yeah. And I think that's what's going to require change too. So I'm going to nominate Jamise, tell Kevin I'm nominating him to say, Oh, you know what? No, because I told him to run. He worked yeah, for the city. He should he worked so for run. the city for another oh lord. Co- for two should. other cities. Yeah. For the city of those cities. And I told him, I said, you should run for city councilman or to something at some you know, government Local. level, city and government and level. I'm not blindly optimistic. I totally hear what you're saying. And I, but I am optimistic that I think this was the breaking point, Anne. It was even too. the breaking point for me to say, yep. something's got to freaking happen. Uh-huh. This is unbelievable that, you know, this is occurring. So I told you, I said, I'm teaching summer school. I'm rolling out that first week with Black Lives Matter. I'm, I've downloaded the information and I'm going to roll out the curriculum and see where it goes. Like, do what you may. But I'm starting the week with that. <laughs> intentional conversations. Yeah, I, I, th- I'm gonna agree with Deidre here that I, uh, yes, we've been in positions like when Trayvon Martin, and positions where it kind of was like an, an uprising. But this is far greater than any protesting that we, well, that I've seen in my lifetime. I know, you know, the riots that we had. What was that in the 80s, 90s? Rodney. Uh, yeah, Rodney King. Um, mm-hmm. That was horrible. Trayvon Martin. That was horrible. This is horrible, and this, but this horribleness seems to have more of more of a calling to more people, and and I'm gonna go with Deidre that I'm optimistic that this is gonna be the breaking point for significant change. Like you said, it is for you. It definitely was for me. One of the other things that just like blew me away is like our superintendent of schools, Tony Thurman. He is the only black elected official in California. How the hell did that happen? Like, seriously? Like, why don't, exactly the same thing. Like, why don't we have more Black people in decision-making places? And that kind of was back to our beginning conversation that we had is, why is our school so imbalanced? Why is our district so imbalanced? Why don't we have enough more Black educators that represent our, our population? And, or any, or just even of color, any other color besides white. And I think that goes back to that implicit bias that's absolutely everywhere because when we were listening to the Tony Thurman talk 
yesterday, the live Facebook thing that he did. And I was reading the comments and someone put, you know, get rid of blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what is that? And I Googled it and it's some like reading test for educators or something that you have to take. And I'm looking at this, this page on the California Department of Education of this test, this test, this test, this, that you as an educator, you have to pay for them all. You got to pay for them. 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 And then at the bottom, it's all, you know, Pearson education. They do absolutely everything. They're making tons of money off stuff that we don't need them to make money off. And I remember when I started teaching and my very best friend, and I will say her name, Rose, she was my very best friend. And she and I were going to start our student, our, our teaching education program together. And we were going to start substitute teaching together. Well, in the fall, and unfortunately, she, she could never pass the CBEST. She could never pass the written part, but you know she'd be a damn good teacher. You know, she would be an, a fantastic, awesome teacher. But that just, like, as we're reading this, and I'm thinking, why aren't there, you know, she's a person of color. She couldn't get through this test. I knew her dearly. She was extremely in, intelligent. So it was just the writing part. That's that. I think that just goes back to our cultural bias. I don't know, Deidre. What do you think about the writing? I mean, the standardized tests are biased from the get-go. Right. I mean, students really have no cultural context when taking those standardized tests. Because everything's all... written by white white men. Hello, well, and, white, white men that aren't in education to a, to a white audience. <laughs> well, remember right. the test? There was a test where for elementary they asked a student in, in an underprivileged in, environment where what goes under the cup, and it's like they don't <laughs> they don't have saucers <laughs> under their cup. Like, they don't have like my table. Tea my time. table go under the cup. You like, know. Right. And and those are, but, but to me, those are, those are things that I never would have thought of. I like, I never would have thought of that as being a problem, but you know, that's because that's my reality. And I I'm not familiar enough with other people's realities. But Sharon, that's what I was saying about, we have to kind of dig into the culture of who you could ever possibly teach and not just teach like besides your own. I think it's always been the privilege of white people to kind of not have to ever consider those things. Right. You just, you're born, you exist, you just be in this world. Whereas for us, you know, there are constant reminders, albeit I did not, Deidre and I were talking about this. And for those of uh, listeners that don't know where we are sisters, blood sisters. So (laughs) (laughs) um, I followed her to this district. Um, (laughs) Growing up, we were just commenting about how we didn't really experience like, any overt racism. She grew up late 60s, 70s. I grew up in the 70s, 80s. It was not until I started teaching in our district that I experienced racism. Really? I never, and I taught LA Unified for years and lived in St. Louis, Missouri in the 80s. We lived in Fenton in the early 80s where Ooh, the Ku Klux Klan had was Klan zone. <laughs> so, and we never experienced anything like that. It literally was not until we got to, there was an incident that I will share with you guys as a teacher that I experienced. There was a student who did not like the fact that I didn't want him to eat in the classroom. It turned into this thing. Uh, He told me that all kinds of things were gonna happen to me. The police were called. This white officer approached me and I could tell as he was approaching, I didn't like his demeanor because I just felt like he was so nonchalant. And he asked me, 
did you really think that your life was threatening or in danger? And, you know, I didn't say anything because I wanted to go completely ballistic because not only was the student like in their class, because it happened like hours or maybe the next day or something. And the student I saw like in their class with, or going into their classroom. And in my head, what I said to myself was, hmm, I'm looking and you're married. If I'm assuming you probably aren't married to a black woman. So if this happened to your wife or one of her friends, would you have the same reaction? Would you feel, and I think that the uh, assumption is that black women don't necessarily have the baseline feelings that other women have. We don't have the same, we have a, a higher pain threshold. We can endure more. We're not looked at as that we're really sensitive. And if we do react, that sensitivity is now turned into, oh, she's so angry. Like, why, oh, oh. Or it automatically turns into like, this sister girl thing where if you emote, it's like, okay, I, you know, and it's like, no, I didn't do that. I'm just emoting about something I do feel, you know, so those kinds of things are kind of those icky things that you, you encounter, but you know, you keep going. But again, yeah, we never, I never experienced that until, what about you, Dee? Not so much um, experiencing anything overtly or subtly. I'm racist within our district, but I would always make the joke because it was 10 years before another black teacher was hired. I was like, I know I'm the token. And they were like, don't say that. Stop saying that. And I'm like, well, dude, it is what it is. I go look around. There's a paraprofessional that's African-American and the only other person is in the cafeteria. And I go, I'm it. And it go, and I just felt the pressure of being like the black spokesperson. And it's mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. take, take that pressure off my plate. You know, that, I don't want that responsibility. So, um, but nevertheless, <laughs> that's the responsibility. So how, how then would our district recruit that? Because truly when we had the last position that was open for, I think it was English that we had to fill, there was nobody of color that uh, came, came to, for the interview. It was like slim pickings. So what does our district need to do in order to encourage more people of color to apply for, well, who knows how many positions there are gonna be now. <laughs> Negative 20. <laughs> When, when, if there if ever is a chance to hire again, how, how, do a, how does a district make sure that they are recruiting from all ethnicities? Well, I don't think it's a matter of the recruiting part, Anne, because I do know some African-Americans that have applied to the district. And I will, I think Jamise kind of echoed this when she was on a panel before. I think there's a predisposition in terms of who seems more desirable to fit the mold of what the district is trying to portray, the image that is trying to portray to greater society. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I think there has to be a lot of mental paradigm shifts and changes within individuals to know that, you know what, we got to give everybody an equitable opportunity. And then I think putting more of us on a panel, when I say of us, faces of color on panels so that we can bring that conversation up. Well, you know what, what makes this candidate more desirable than the other candidate? So I think that needs to happen as well. I've heard it verbalized. I won't say what the position was that the person was applying for, but this person was highly qualified, had been doing the work at their former site, just not in that position. Would have been an awesome parallel move 
came with great recommendations and a person in leadership made the comment that she'll never be able to keep up with the likes of this person and that person in the district at higher levels. And mainly he was talking about the way she spoke because she was a brown woman and just had an accent. And he, I think, equated that with intellect. Mm -hmm. And it was like, whoa, really? Is that where we are today? Oh my goodness. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. And when I listened to him say that, I said, I just thought to myself, well, gosh darn, what do you think a little old me? Well, if you're thinking that of her. Would you speak up then? Did you speak up and say something? Oh yes, I did say something. I said something that was relevant to, you know, mirror how qualified she was and we shouldn't, you know, kind of look at things that don't have to do with her merit or lack thereof. And, you know, it was just kind of like, you know, it was taken with a grain of salt. So. It's an uphill battle, isn't it? It is. Mm -hmm. That just goes to show the people, like you said, people who are in positions to, you know, select people that are out in our community or, in leadership positions. Even with officers, I for a I went through a curriculum back when and I had to read this book about armor, but like different types of armor we have. And it was just talking about, you know, mainly one being people who pursue careers in law enforcement. They typically have like a certain if you were to analyze them. And I mean I don't have the credentials to do that, but just um from what I can recall, like how Sometimes they come from environments where they weren't the most popular in high school, were always striving to be kind of respected or maybe from a familial standpoint. And of course, not everyone, but there were, there were some. And when I look at those people who do brutal things, when they do have that badge on and they seize the moment to not protect and serve and, you know, abuse their power, I look at those types of people who've been sworn in to mirror those profiles that come from like you're you know making up for lost times or you're trying to overcompensate for something that's lacking and now you have all of this authority you have all of this power and you know did you were you a person that ever had to go through some sort of cultural sensitivity to where the in the community that you're serving you understand or you know about you don't live here mm-hmm. you didn't probably grow up around any of these people that's a really Yeah, you're supposed to come in and protect and serve. Do you really want to protect and serve? Or are you looking at these people in this community as animals that need to be controlled? That's a super good point. That's, I think that's something that needs to be taken care of is who work in certain environments. Like if I'm going to go work in Compton, I better understand the kids who are going to be coming into my class. Mm-hmm. That's something that I would have to go there and spend time in the neighborhoods, in their stores, you know, in the restaurants, walking on the street and talking to people before I could really work there and be effective, you know, as a teacher, right? So anybody who's going to work in a neighborhood that is not of their own, I think has the responsibility or should have the responsibility to become very aware of the kinds of people their need before they go and take that job. And it's up to the people who are doing the hiring and doing the placing that need to become more aware of that and, and make that a, a requirement before mm-hmm. they put those people there. So on that note, Anne, okay, I do not live where I work. I'm, I know I'm just the next town over, but I think my town is dramatically different. 
than the the town that I work in. And uh, someone else mentioned this, and one of the one of the educators I was listening to this week is like, "You want to know your neighborhood?" What did he say? He said, "Go to the barber and go to the churches." That's what he said. <laughs> visit the churches and visit the barber shops, and you will be able to see what matters and what they value in their community. And I was thinking about it, and I'm like, hmm, haven't done that. Where? What do I know about the community that I work in? I worked in. I worked there a very long time. Okay. When I before I had my own children, I I would do more like if the kids asked me to to go to like a, their soccer game or their baseball game or or something, I might go, right? But I haven't done that in years. I don't want to say I feel like a total failure, but I feel like a failure. <laughs> I do. I feel I feel like I have failed in in so many ways that that I I don't do that. What do I what do I visit in our communities. I visit the restaurant, some of the shops. I do do that. I'll shop in our community, but I don't generally hang out there. And if I have a choice, I won't go there. So what does that say? I want to counter that. I disagree with you. Tell me. I won't say you're a total failure at all, because I will say this. I've observed you as an educator as long as I've been at our site. And I will say you take the time to establish relationship. And so establishing a relationship and a rapport with the kids, I think says volumes more than trying to, you know, go to a barbershop or go to a church service. Those are good external things that you could do, you know, extra. However, I think in the moment, one-on-one with the kids, I think you do a better job there of having purposeful and meaningful relationship with them, you know, ongoing. So I won't say, I disagree with you saying you're a failure. I think that you love what you do. You've gone out of your way as far as I've observed. Now, Anne, you can counter this if you want, but I think you've gone out of your way to relate to kids exclusive of color. I don't think I've encountered you, you know, specifically categorizing students. I think you've pretty much seen them. These are kids. You just categorize them as kids. And to me, I think that's been your, it's come from your heart of compassion and your heart of care and love and concern because they're kids and you're passionate about what you do as an educator. Can I, and understanding the population that your kids or the community your kids come from doesn't mean the expectation is that you have to hang out there. Huh, right. please. Right. No, no. <laughs> no yeah. way. Yeah. You can still be, you can have a, a great understanding of what they do and be an effective, like she's saying, educator and not have to just hang out in that community. Right. Can I ask you another question? being that you are uh, black educators at our schools, do you think that the kids have a different expectation from you mm-hmm. when they're, when you're teaching? She's not. I've even. been told by black students that I was racist towards my black kids. Mm-hmm. And then I had, when I called on the phone, <laughs> I had to have a parent conference because this kid said, she's racist. He never once mentioned to the parent that I was black and that he was black. <laughs> no, he's black and he didn't he never said she's a black teacher. So she just said, I mean, the student just said, yeah, she's racist. She treats me different than the other kids. So when I call on the phone, you know, I put on my professional voice. The parent doesn't know at the time that I'm black. <laughs> so, and we never have the conversation over the phone. So we get in the parent meeting and I walk in and it was just me at the time before, I don't know who was the administrator at the time, but I walked into the counselor's room that the student and the parent are sitting there and I walk in 
And the parent like, yeah, you know, I'm waiting on the teacher uh, that my kid's saying is racist and blah, blah, blah. And I go, oh, good, af- you know, good afternoon. I'm Mrs. Leslie and I'm that teacher. And she looked at him and she said, boy, have you lost your ever living mind? Who do, you, who do you think she sees in the mirror? How could she be racist? You know what your problem is? You're just mad because she probably mirrors what I'm saying to you. And she looks like a black mother in the classroom. She went off. But she was floored that he had the audacity to call me racist. And he said, well, what I mean was she treats me differently than she does the other kids. And I said, I do that on purpose, son. Yes, I have to treat you different. I said, you know why? I said, because unfortunately, there's a stereotype for you already probably embedded someplace on this campus and in society. So there's a different way that I have to treat you in terms of letting you know, you know, how you need to maintain yourself as a young man of color on this campus. So yes, I was like, I am treating you differently to have these intentional conversations with you so you understand what you're dealing with and where you know I'm coming from. If you had like some recommendations for teachers, what would you want all teachers to know in order to be more aware of what they're doing? What are some things that we all need to do? Maybe some suggestions you have for professional development. What are some things you would like to see in our schools that could really make a change? I think it's not a matter of interest. It's a matter of necessity. And, you know, people are throwing around this term woke. And I think teachers of all races need to be woke. And you have to, you must, you must include this stuff in your classroom. D? I would say taking the time to stop and have those teachable moments in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, Jamise, in the previously in the program, you brought up the N-word. So immediately when, you know, something offensive like the N-word's brought up or mm-hmm. the whole George Floyd incident, like what's happening now in the news, having those things that are prevalent and um, immediate and being mindful and intentionally having the discussion, even though it may be difficult to confront, but having the discussion in the moment and confronting hard truths. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, I want to add something to that, even though I'm not a black educator. As a white educator, I think that what I have learned this week is um, since there are not a lot of black educators in our district, I am finding them online and I am listening to them online and I, so that I can get more perspective, not just mine and not just our district. I don't know. I feel like I've, I feel like I've learned quite a bit by listening to a bunch of other teachers this week. I think that's what's something we all need to do. I think Deidre brought this up in the beginning is those conversations need to be happening, not just with our students, but among our coworkers at the lunchtime tables. Deidre, you need to come out of your room more. And um, <laughs> we're fun, really, I swear. Girl, by the time I walk across <laughs> campus and walk back, lunch is I know, over. I know, I'm <laughs> right over there with you. <laughs> I'm right over there with you. Oh, my Lord. And oh, I want to add one more thing. And just um, to add on to what you just said, Ann, um, being willing to hold white colleagues accountable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hold, holding each other accountable because I think one of the black educators said it in that, in the Reynolds, was his name, McReynolds? Yes. He said, it's different when a, a black person says it. Now I come off as confrontational or the angry black female, but when you hold each other accountable, that speaks volumes more than what I could ever say. Even though I don't have a problem doing it, I don't have a problem saying, you know, speaking the truth, but it's going to hold more value 
mm-hmm. um, and really spark more change when it, when it comes from a white colleague. True that. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to thank you guys so, so much for taking us to Thank you, Anne and Sharon. We appreciate mm-hmm. it. Thank you for allowing me to. Thank you, Sissy. I love my sister so much. Oh, it's obvious. Well, we love your sister too. I uh, love your sister. I've loved her since the day I met her. (laughs) Ditto. Okay, you win. But. um, (laughs) But what I'd like to say: this is not the end. This is a beginning hopefully, and that many more conversations like this will be happening all over the place and hopefully will be taking place in professional development rooms, in schools all across the nation, because if we're going to solve it, it's going to be, has to be something that comes from everywhere. So on that note, thanks for listening. I hope you will tune in again. If you found this information useful, please subscribe. And don't forget to visit us on our website, www.transparencyinteaching.com. And we'll have all of the links to the articles we were referring to in the show notes. And we hope to catch you again. Please leave comments um, about the show so that uh, we can uh, continue this conversation. So have a great day, you guys. We'll talk to you all later. Bye. 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 That's our show. I hope you found something you can use, even if it's only in some small way, to make this world a better place, because we all know we need to make some changes. Check out the links to the resources that we used to put together today's show at our website, www.transparencyandteaching.com. And please leave a comment while you're there and let us know what you think about today's topic and also what other topics you'd like to hear us discuss. Again, thank you for taking the time to listen. Have an amazing day.